0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martini's coming up. So glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have your stool prepared for you, and we have good. Bad and crazy martinis, possibly a good and two crazies. We'll let you be the judge of that. But let's get to our good martini. And Jim, we always love to see people with the courage to stand up to their repressive government and demand freedom. We talked a lot about our respect for the people of Hong Kong, our frustration that, look, the United States and others didn't do much other than issue a few statements as the Chinese just stamped out. Uh, Freedom in Hong Kong. Uh, Now the issue is rising again in Cuba. Um, The people took to the streets in numerous cities, large groups of people. The media say hundreds. In most cases, I think it was certainly at least thousands. And screaming liberty or libertad in Spanish. Uh, Freedom, as the New York Times said, in addition to other anti-government chants. So freedom is an anti-government chant, which uh, could be a whole discussion in and of itself. But um, the other good news here is that the Biden administration has issued a statement here, and it's actually one we would agree with. You would think or at least fear, perhaps, that given Uh, the Obama administration's overtures to Cuba, that he would go soft here, but he didn't. The question, of course, will be how serious he is with any follow-up statements and policies. But he says, We stand with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. The Cuban people are bravely asserting fundamental and universal rights. Those rights, including the right of peaceful protest and the right to freely determine their own future, must be respected. The United States calls on the Cuban regime to hear their people and serve their needs at this vital moment rather than enriching themselves. And Jim, just like in Hong Kong, the people of Cuba taking to the streets in part with the American flag because... We're still the place they look to as an example. I wish everyone in this country would would recognize that too. So what do you make of what we're seeing in Cuba?
1: First of all, Greg, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is that when you see people waving the American flag in Cuba, all of these protesters, all of these people upset with the regime, they're fed up. Uh, I could say, you know, don't they realize how offensive that is to socialists on college campuses all across the country? <laughs> but less tongue-in-cheek, like, do you realize the balls of steel it takes to have an American flag in Cuba? Yeah. I mean, if, you, if somebody finds that in your house, you're in trouble. Somebody somebody narks you, rats you out to the state authorities, you're probably going to prison. You're, you're, your life is going to be miserable. You and your family's names are going to go on a list and you're never going to get any of the special goodies for people who are loyal to the party and stuff like that. I mean, just having that flag represents an enormous amount of personal risk. And then the people come together and they celebrate it. Holy smokes, are we seeing, you know, just unbelievable courage there. Um, so what the interesting is, it seems to have come out of nowhere, and it really hasn't. Now, this is, it's good to see what we saw from President Biden. The initial statement from the State Department was not exactly a rousing cry in defense of freedom and said this, sounded, this was mostly an objection over uh, access to vaccines and COVID-19. I would not dispute that the uh, spread of COVID-19 to Cuba and the extraordinarily slow pace of distributing vaccines—that's a factor. I, I wouldn't—I wouldn't dispute that part. But I think what we're seeing I, I, in today's morning jolt, I kind of tried to walk through. I was like, okay, this seems like it came out of nowhere, but I'll bet it didn't. What's been happening in Cuba? Under the radar, because American media probably doesn't pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Cuba on a day-to-day basis. What's been happening that added to this? And I won't go through the whole thing. I'm just going to observe that there's been this growing dissident artist movement called San Isidro movement. Um, they basically had this, uh, apparently, this this uh, bizarrely popular Uh, rap song called Patria y Vida, Fatherland and Life, which is uh, kind of mocking the slogan of Fidel Castro of patria o o muerte, fatherland or death. Um, And I got this huge reaction. And it's it's interesting. They describe it as singers sporting gold chains, hoodies and backwards baseball caps rattle off a long list of grievances about poverty, repression and misrule before declaring it is over and we are not afraid. That's also kind of a big deal. That's not the sort of thing you're used to hearing. And again, you want to talk about something, you know, whatever you think of rap, (laughs) these guys are guys worth saluting. Because by doing this, they're painting a big target on their back and basically saying, I don't care. I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. I've had it. Right. Now, the other thing is that you notice, again, another story didn't get a huge amount of attention. But Raul Castro, who was really getting up there in years, uh, stepped down as head of the regime back in April. And I don't know if what we're seeing now is necessarily a reaction to the fact that the guy in charge no longer has the last name Castro, but these things do kind of function in a form of a cult of personality and they do have a certain amount of, um, you and I would not find him as particularly charismatic, but the idea of like this rule of fear and this reverence for the family name and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I kind of have this, this sneaking suspicion that maybe this wouldn't be happening quite the same way if Raul Castro was still in charge. There's a lot of road ahead. We have, do not have a guarantee of a happy ending in this. But I do feel like a couple, like a couple of factors are different now than other times in the past. who may have seen protests against the Cuban regime. And the other thing I just kind of throw out here is, Greg, think about all the times in the last, let's say, three, four years, we've heard about what's been nicknamed Havana syndrome, the sheer number of U.S. diplomats over down there working in our embassy down there who have had um, some sort of odd brain injuries. They believe it may be some sort of sonic weapons. Something is causing intense headaches, and in some cases, permanent brain or uh, traumatic brain injuries to people working in our embassy, and they're fairly sure it's a weapon. We think it's the Russians. We're not 100% sure, um, but this has been going on for a couple of years now, and I can't help but figure that's a reason, having seen Barack Obama go down to Cuba and hold hands with Raul Castro and Go watch the baseball game and this kind of, hey, we can get along with the Cuban regime uh, approach we saw under Obama. Why so far, knocking on wood, Joe Biden isn't quite taking that uh, uh, that approach. Let's also point out uh, Barack Obama won the state of Florida twice, very narrowly. Uh, and Biden did not win the state of, of uh, Florida, not quite as narrowly as Hillary Clinton did. So maybe he's a little more attuned to how Floridians and how Cuban Americans down there feel about all this. Anyway, it's a sl- much better approach to Cuba than we've seen during the Obama years and are hoping it, it, it stays in that way.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And of course, the Obama administration, it wasn't just cozying up to Cuba. You know, the people of Iran, of course, uh, launched the, the Green Revolution back there in the early part of the Obama administration. He just pretty much sat on his hands. So, Again, good first step from the Biden administration. Hopefully it doesn't just look the other way when the crackdown happens. And like you said earlier, the crackdown is definitely happening. And um, the cur- the courage of the people taking to the streets with the flag is absolutely amazing. I mean, we sit around wondering, you know, what are people going to think if we like this tweet or what if we share this or retweet it? And these people are out there putting their lives and their their future generations of their families on the line by demanding their freedom in the streets. It's uh, absolutely beautiful to watch. And hopefully one day soon it happens. All right, let's talk about our great sponsor, Ritual Multivitamins. Look, uh, we're coming out, I think, of the uh, pandemic and uh, summertime is a a good time to uh, stay healthy and beef up that immune system heading into uh, winter, which isn't that far away. Um, And Ritual is a great way to just make sure you're getting all the vitamins and minerals that you need to stay as healthy as you can. And the best thing about Ritual is that it tells you what's in their multivitamins. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, especially when it comes to something we're using every day. Rituals Clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms that your body can actually use. What you won't find are sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colors. Plus, the fresh taste, which I love, and the delayed-release capsule design make taking your vitamins as easy as possible.
1: Ritual is the multivitamin reimagined. A multivitamin should contain key nutrients and forms your body can actually use to help fill gaps in your diet, but you don't need any shady extras. And Ritual's delayed release capsule design delivers high quality nutrients, including vitamin D3 in just two daily pills. Plus, Ritual is made traceable. You'll always know what nutrients you're taking and where they come from, thanks to Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain. it's absolutely a fantastic multivitamin and it's got the things you
0: need especially for that healthy immune system jim mentioned the d3 it's also got the vitamin c plenty of b and the zinc which we all love whenever we're starting to feel like we're coming down with something so ritual is great for that and of course the transparency of what's in it is fantastic as well so get those key nutrients without the bs ritual is offering three martini lunch listeners 10 percent off during your first three months So visit Ritual.com slash Martini to start your ritual today. Again, Ritual.com slash Martini. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad or crazy Martini, and that's a uh, pretty extensive look at master's degrees coming from the Wall Street Journal and how they're a giant waste of money uh, most times. Neither you or I have master's degrees, and sometimes master's degrees are important. If you want to teach at the university level, for example, it's probably good to have at least a master's degree. Obviously, if you're in the medical field or you need an MBA to advance in your business career, those can be valuable as well. But in some other areas, not so much. A lot of this goes back to uh, the Bush era. Uh, it says here at uh, Hot Air. I'm not sure if that means George W., but I think it does. Uh, during the Bush era, the feds passed a new loan called Grad Plus to help students who want to pursue a graduate education pay their way. Grad Plus has three distinguishing features. The interest rates on the loans can be quite high, upwards of 8%. Unlike with undergrad loans, there's no lending limits, so some students borrow well into the six figures. And if the loans aren't paid off in 20 to 25 years, taxpayers are on the hook for the balance. Now, uh, like we said, there are some reasons to get master's. Most cases, not so much. This is what the journal says. At New York University, graduates with a master's degree in publishing borrowed a median of $116,000 and had an annual median income of $42,000 two years after the program. The data on recent borrowers also shows that at Northwestern University, half of those who earned degrees in speech-language pathology borrowed $148,000 or more, and the graduates had a median income of $60,000 two years later. Graduates of the University of Southern California's Marriage and Family Counseling Program borrowed a median $124,000, and half earned $50,000 or less over the same period. And so it goes... On and on and on. And so the idea, or at least the rule of thumb here, Jim, is that you're not supposed to borrow more than your starting salary, which obviously is not the case for people in a lot of these fields. And so they're building up a tremendous amount of debt, and uh, that leads to a lot of different problems. And so a lot of these master's degrees are being sold as invaluable when they just simply aren't necessary.
1: Yeah, on paper, there's nothing wrong with a master's degree. Right. Uh, in fact, he's going to be embarrassed if I mention this, my younger brother just got his master's degree just this year. And I'm exceptionally proud of him. And I think it's going to serve him well in his career. But for a lot of cases, you kind of sit there and wonder, you know, what is the cost benefit analysis? And if it's going to put you into considerable debt for a really long time, well, then you better have a good chance of finding a good paying job in your chosen profession. And, you know, this requires people to take a certain amount of really, cold hard calculations of what yeah, you know, how many jobs open up in my field in any given year. Uh, what are my chances of getting one of those? What are my chances of what what do I have to do if I can't get one of those jobs? What kind of jobs will I have an access to do? Like now here's the thing. It's very tough for a 18, 19, 20 year old to make that decision when they're undergrad. And you know when you say, oh I, I love um I'm not gonna say basket weaving be but like so I, I love so you know this idea of sociology. I want to do a major in it. Okay. Well, the question is, you know, are you going to, you know, the 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 concerned parent question is always some version of, all right, well, what are you going to do with it afterwards? Who's going to hire you? And look, maybe if you're if you can find a job with that degree, fantastic. That's not the case. The other kind of intriguing aspect of this, and one that really makes these program master's degrees look like, if not a scam, um, then certainly an exploitative system here. Um, James Stodderow, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. He's a very successful Hollywood screenwriter. He's worked on a whole bunch of television shows. He's not a superstar, but he's worked on as one, two, three, four, five, six, like at least seven shows. I believe he's currently the executive producer of the Batwoman TV series over on uh, uh, CW. Not Batwoman as in the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but Batwoman as in DC Comics, right? Um, and so he, he taught at Columbia's Master of uh, Fine Arts Film Program. Right? And that sounds very distinguished. At Columbia University, it's very well, you know, very highly regarded. I won't read the entire thread, but basically he makes it sound like. He was surprised. He feels like the, one of the most, uh, you know, someone who was uh, the people who were teaching it were, were basically graduate students themselves, and he was kind of struck by the fact that the instructors really were struggling to establish their own careers and weren't that much more experienced than the students. And the other thing, which I didn't realize, is I guess I kind of should have figured this out. If you're in a film program, um, you have to make student films, right? That's what you're supposed to do there. Except the guy, you know, like the uh, the school, will not give you any money to do that. So you have to shell out for everything you want to do in your, um, in, your, uh, uh, in, in your student film. And obviously, you know, you can either make one of your buddies sitting around, you know, the dorm room or something like that or walking around the streets of New York. But it was making a really good film. Now, the idea is that your film could be chosen for the, the school's annual festival, where he says, in theory, big time agents could see it and sign you. Uh, and then you could end up becoming a star director and all that stuff. Um, But he says it was cutthroat to even be selected and you had to pay for your own film and you're competing with all kinds of other ones that were, you know, films that were shot in Europe and and all kinds of stuff like that. And so he describes students going into more and more debt trying to make their awesome student film that they hope will get them an agent that they hope will start their career out in Hollywood. Um, So he describes himself not finishing his degree, going off to work in Hollywood and finding some level of success, being invited to be a speaker And he says, well, you know, I never actually finished my degree. I don't really think I qualify as a a distinguished alumni. Well, will have you talk to the dean? We'll work it out. He goes into the meeting with the dean and the dean pitches him a TV pilot. And it becomes very clear that if he wanted to uh, get his degree finished, he now already with a functioning, thriving career in Hollywood would have to help out the dean of the film school get his own TV pilot made. Uh, He says, I still don't have my Master of Fine Arts. That chair is no longer the chair, but still teaching there to my knowledge. They never sold their pilot. Really kind of just striking. I guess the the, the lesson of all this is if you are thinking of going to graduate school, take a long, hard look, not just the graduation rate, not just the tuition rate, and figure out is there another school that can give me almost or, or comparably good experience at a much lower price, but then it's like, what do people who go to the school do afterwards? Do they succeed? Do they end up doing what they want to do in their chosen professions? And if it's something that's really competitive, like film, maybe you're better just moving out to Hollywood and trying to, you know, be the gopher for somebody for a while just to make the connections. I don't know. I'm not. In, I'm not in that field. But again, due diligence is much very worthwhile. You get the feeling some places have thrived primarily because of people who haven't done the due diligence. So. Mm-hmm. Be careful out there with your hard-earned dollars, folks. No, that's exactly right.
0: And, of course, there's also a lot of concern about the cost, the rapidly rising cost of undergraduate degrees. And some people, Jim, believe that it's because the government has taken a much bigger role in the student loan industry, and therefore there's this supposedly unlimited supply of money, and therefore colleges and universities can charge that much because they know the government will give the loans and ultimately the people will pay it back or the taxpayers will pay it back. And so it's this uh, never-ending cycle. Whether or not we're headed to a bubble, I don't know. But the question will soon be coming to undergraduate degrees because the the, the tabs are way higher than when we were doing it.
1: Yeah, I, I look, yeah, we've been talking about a, a bub- higher education bubble for probably 20 years, Glenn Reynolds, and Insta, uh, Glenn Reynolds, the Instapundit, uh, has done, written a lot, a lot about that. And you could probably make an argument that it already has come for certain schools. It, obviously, if you're the most prestigious Ivy League schools, you're always gonna have a ton of applicants. You're always gonna have a very small acceptance rate, and you're always gonna have some people who are willing to sell their kidneys on the black market if necessary in order to make the tuition payments. But I think you're right. I think the idea of the government always saying, oh, no, don't worry, we'll always give you more loans Really has, you know, like traditionally, you, if, a, if a business off, uh, raises its prices too high, they stop selling the product. People don't want to do it anymore. If a Big Mac cost a million dollars, McDonald's would stop selling Big Macs. And you'd end up with a situation where this is how supply and demand is supposed to work, to figure out what price works for both the buyer and the seller. If the government comes in and says, don't worry, I'll cover the cost of that, you end up in a situation where they're kind of immune to you know, the consequences of cost increases get kicked down the road. Well, here we are well down the road.
0: But if you are the parent of a college student or a uh, high school student who's soon headed uh, towards the college level and you're wondering how you're going to pay those exorbitant bills and you're losing sleep at night... Get some MyPillow products because at least you'll sleep better when you can fall asleep. And that's uh, not just uh, with a fantastic pillow from Pillow, which of course they have, but also other products like the Giza Dream Sheets. Uh, I've said this many times over the past several days. Love the Giza Dream Sheets. They're super soft. Uh, the cotton is excellent. Very, very comfortable. By far uh, the favorite sheets of Mrs. Corumbus and me.
1: Their current offer is that for a limited time, you can get two sets of Giza Dream Sheets for one low price plus free shipping. Imagine sliding into the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own, guaranteed. They're made from the world's best cotton, which is grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. It's long staple cotton makes it ultra soft and breathable. These sheets are available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable. They have a 60 day money back guarantee and a one year limited warranty. So
0: visit MyPillow.com and use the promo code MARTINI at checkout or call 800-874-0104 for two sets of Giza Dream Sheets for one low price plus free shipping. Again, that's two sets of Giza Dream Sheets for one low price plus free shipping with the promo code MARTINI. It's all at MyPillow.com or call 800-874-0104. Sleep better with MyPillow.com or call 800 874 zero one zero four all right jim vice president kamala harris back in our crazy martini and boy has she earned it again this time uh for a couple of different reasons let's start with voter id Uh, harris was being interviewed on bet by soledad o'brien and uh, one of the issues that came up, of course, was the uh, voting legislation that the Democrats desperately want to get through this year. And most rational people and conservatives certainly don't. But uh, the issue, of course, came up of voter ID because if Joe Manchin's going to be part of this, which they obviously have to have him on board to have any chance of getting this done, he says he wants voter ID to be part of it. And so O'Brien brings that up, and Kamala Harris's reasons for being hesitant about voter ID just boggle the imagination here's what she said is agreeing to voter id one of those compromises that you'd support i don't think that we should underestimate what that could mean because in some people's mind that means well you're gonna have to um xerox or are are photocopy your ID to send it in to prove who you are who you are. Well, there are a whole lot of people, especially people who live in rural communities, who don't, there's no kinkos, there's no office max near them. People have to understand that when we're talking about voter ID
1: laws, be clear about who you have in mind and what would be required of them to prove who they are. Of course people have to prove who they
0: are, but not in a way that makes it, them, it almost impossible for them to prove who they are. Jim, I don't know what photocopying has to do with presenting an ID to vote, but uh, Kamala Harris will come up with some excuse because she's clearly not in favor of voter ID. In this same interview, O'Brien mentioned that uh, Biden has put her in charge of a number of different things, uh, including immigration, uh, broadband access, black maternal mortality, racial inequality, women in the workforce, infrastructure. Uh, And O'Brien says that seems like a lot for one person. And Harris says, yeah, maybe I don't say no enough. And then, of course... She laughed because that's what she does anytime there's an <laughs> awkward question. So, uh, Jim, um, we knew from the presidential campaign that she did not come across as authentic, or at least someone people wanted to vote for. Now that people see her on an almost daily basis, uh, the reviews are not much better. So, uh, based on uh, this fake photocopying concern and the fact that she says she doesn't say no enough, uh, not uh, not building the stock very much here.
1: It is kind of intriguing that. Uh, at the exact moment that Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and other Democrats have said, OK, we'll give up on voter ID. All right. Voter ID. It's reasonable. Manchin put it into his bill. Makes sense. OK, we'll go along with it. But she's actually going to she's like you know, the, the last person fighting this fight, insisting, that, oh, there's something wrong. with So I went back and I checked. So there was this big study that came out. Uh, I think it was the end of May, it came in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. It was a really detailed look. Uh, look at data for every election from 2008 to 2018, right? 10 years, right? You add up all the voters in all those years, you end up with 1.6 billion, right? And so they kind of looked at and say, all right, what does voter ID requirements do when you compare the, the turnout in years where they haven't had strict voter ID requirements and when they do have voter, strict voter ID requirements? You know what they found? The laws have no negative effect on registration or turnout overall or for any group defined by race, gender, age, or party affiliation. Then they conclude, overall, our findings suggest that efforts to improve elections may be better directed at other reforms. Now, there were a few Democrats who noticed this because they also said that their extensive lookmen they found no significant evidence of voter fraud. Now, you go look at the Heritage Foundation's you know, database, you can find plenty of cases, generally not big. We're talking about three ballots a year, four ballots there, uh, somebody who votes in two states. You know, it's not, big. we're not talking hundreds of thousands of votes here. This is not evidence of 2020 election was wrong decided, but it does happen. But this argument of this, this a really in-depth study from the Quarterly Journal of Economics says actually, there's really no evidence that, you know, a voter ID law suppresses the vote or makes people not come out to vote or there are people who are afraid of showing ID or or anything like that. So what's interesting is that for the better part of a decade or however long the voter ID fight has been going on, Democrats have been taking what's a pretty unpopular stand. We've seen the polling indicates that, you know, broad, you know, broad majorities, not just of Republicans, but also of independents and Democrats all think you should be required to stay, to uh, show voter ID is that Democrats were kind of doing this, you know, taking this position and taking the flag for it for something that really wasn't affecting the turnouts or the registration for votes at all. And thus it wasn't really hurting Democrats. And a whole bunch of us looked at it and said, aha, there must be a lot of fraud there. Otherwise Democrats wouldn't be, you know, taking this stance. Uh, look, not a lot of evidence of fraud, but also interestingly, they're holding a fight that doesn't hurt them at all. That's one of the abilities are. And I think that's why Abrams and Warnock and a bunch of other Democrats were like, wait, why are we doing this? let's allow voter ID. We're still going to do fine. We're still going to win plenty of elections. We're going, to st- we're going to win the elections. We should win. And there's really no evidence that a voter ID law stops Democrats or Democratic-leaning voters from coming up to vote. So in that light, look, I welcome the Democrats making some movement on this. But here's Kamala Harris saying, no, no, we can't give an inch on this. We've still got to talk about how ridiculous it is. Uh, and oh, by the way, she's—you know—she's she says she needs to get better at saying no. Greg, if only she had... Figured that out before (laughs) Biden had offered the the vice presidential nod, huh? Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with that. But yes, she should have said (laughs) no to
0: that, and he never should have offered it to her. But uh, yes, I I wish she had said no a few times earlier in her political career also. But uh, Jim, uh, this is amazing. Uh, Photocopiers and kinkos in rural areas, because, you know, it's the rural red areas that Kamala Harris is really worried about people having access to the ballot, right?
1: (laughs) I mean, like, you know, Look, if she did, yes, great. You know, um, I, I do find it really intriguing that she's, this is not a good issue for Democrats. And yet, so you've, if you've got an issue that's not great, you'd want to like just stay at the broadest generalities. You know, we believe that everyone should be allowed to vote and we, you know, oppose any efforts to restrict the vote, yada, yada, yada. But she really gets into the weeds there. And uh, that's again, these in the end, she really doesn't have political instincts you, you'd expect to have at this level in politics, and she hasn't gotten it this this far. It's not a great prospect for her getting it. Uh, uh, and then, you know, we'll see we'll see how things shake out. But uh, if you haven't picked it up by now, you're probably not going to pick it up. You know,
0: Herbert Hoover had a chicken in every pot or he promised one anyway. It didn't really turn out that way. Kamala Harris wants a Kinko's in every county. So that's going to be her, <laughs> her campaign slogan if she ever becomes a nominee. Uh, hopefully she won't. Jim, have a great Monday. I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, Please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Uh, We're very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Remember to get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, too. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.